a Women Charge podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which we record, the Wilguru Kaba and Bindal peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. At a Women Charge podcast, we are buzzing for a life and want to bring Aussie vulva havers the truthful story that proudly bear all there is to know about being a damn fine woman in 2022. Lubricate your ears and listen in to me, your host, Anna Walsh, as I interview fierce femmes from around Australia, entrepreneurs, single mothers, medical professionals and influencers, all with a story to tell and real advice to offer real women. So here is my episode for today. This episode is for any person who has had pelvic floor problems from complications of pregnancy and birth. You are not alone. Stay charged. Kate Hooper, thank you so much for joining me today on a Women Charge podcast. You're a physiotherapist with a postgraduate qualification in pelvic floor rehabilitation, and you've been working in the field of women's and men's pelvic health since 2002, and you only treat conditions involving pelvic floor dysfunction, and you have extensive experience treating a urinary incontinence, faecal incontinence, prolapse, pelvic organ prolapse functional bowel disorders and persistent pelvic pain and to add to that you also have three children yourself and therefore understand how important it is to remain active both physically and sexually and you believe that although the pelvic region in our body is important it should not rule our lives as such the goal of all these treatments should be to ensure that we can live our lives to its fullest and with minimal impact on our pelvic floor dysfunction so thank you so much for joining us do you want to just explain a little bit about your background and how you started your training and where it's led you now to being this pelvic floor specialist. Sure. Thank you for having me. Look, to be really honest, when I was at uni, I thought I was going to be a rehab physio. I was heading to Cambodia to work with landmine victims and I had absolutely no interest in women's health. But when I was working in Brisbane at the Wesley Wesley Hospital, used to have a hydrotherapy pool there. And I was asked to do the research behind an antenatal exercise class to do in that pool. And I loved it. Mm. I absolutely loved it. And that was my intro into working with women. And from there, I just started doing more and more work with pregnant and postnatal women and gradually became more and more involved in the pelvic floor side of things to the point where I now don't do any of the musculoskeletal stuff with the pregnant and postnatal women. I just look after women and men who have pelvic floor problems. And to be fair, a lot of those problems for women can be related back to pregnancy and and birth issues. So it is a really important time. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that so much, especially about people who are in the medical field, that they often start training and think that, you know, this is the way that they want to go but then they end up just something sparks their interest and then all of a sudden they're down like a rabbit hole but it ends up being like a really interesting thing and sort of takes their career on a trajectory that they could never have imagined or they didn't think that they wanted to go on which sounds very much like you very much very much yeah I think like the landmines thing I don't know when that was um, but that reminds me of Diana like you were going to be out there oh absolutely (laughs) princess Diana like watch out for this one please (laughs) 
Okay, so then how did your experience then of having two children change that? Because I assume you were probably practicing for a while before you got pregnant and started having children. And I have a few obstetrician friends who are female and they say that their experience, especially of early labor, for example, completely changes when they're treating women now after having gone through it themselves. So how, how does that change for you, like both ante and postnatally? To be fair, I think I had to be very careful once I had children that I didn't impose my experience onto anybody else. Yeah, that's true. That's important. Um, because it is a really individual experience and what is right for one person is not right for another. Mm-hmm. So making sure that, yes, there is that bit more of an understanding of how the whole process works, but what happened for you isn't necessarily what's going to happen for anybody else or it's guaranteed it's not going to happen for anybody else because every labour is different. And probably the biggest thing I learned was that you cannot be in control to that degree in labour. Like a lot of women, when they go into labour for the first time have a very definite idea of how they want the labour to go and how they want the delivery to be and some women are very much even I want to deliver my baby in this position and I don't want drugs or I do want drugs and and to be really honest once you get there and you realise what labour's like you've got to have all of those tools and that knowledge but you've got to be very flexible because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah and I suppose that is a classic sort of characteristic of first time mothers is that you feel like you've got your birth plan set in stone like you're almost going in with it chiseled into a piece of stone and that's how it's going to work out whereas and I've had two children myself so I do remember feeling like everything was almost out of my hands on the second time but that was okay I suppose you see two ends of the the patient spectrum there especially afterwards with all these different prolapses and different outcomes that can unfortunately happen after different types of births I think there's a lot of mother guilt in the world and that would be great to get rid of because it doesn't really matter how you deliver your baby as long as both mum and baby are healthy and there is this real push that oh you're too posh to push if you have a a cesarean section but then you have the older mothers in particular who will have their first baby at an older age and they're not as elastic as they used to be and are more prone to having problems with pelvic organ prolapse and more prone to having problems with urinary incontinence and then they're left with a body that they don't necessarily feel is what they want Yes, they got this beautiful baby, but what did it do to them? Mm. Now, I don't want to make paint a terrible picture because some women go through this process and they're absolutely fine. But I mean, you but don't I, see them. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I don't see them. I see the ones who do have the problems. Mm. And I do think that there just needs to be a lot more education in the antenatal process of saying, this is what is happening to you. This is what age you are. This is what size your baby is. And this is what position your baby is in. In this situation, if you had a vaginal birth these are your risks and in this situation if you had a cesarean section these are your risks Mm. and then we are intelligent people women can make an informed decision and if that results in them having some problems afterwards they'll be happy with that because they made that informed decision I, I think a lot of the time women aren't told when they're pregnant and when they're going into labor and therefore the decisions are being made while they're in labor and it's okay we need to use forceps no we need to do this no we need to do an emergency caesar do you consent and they're like whoa okay yeah. I don't know what I'm really consenting Yeah, for. you don't have any choice, really. And to then go, okay, now we deal with the problem afterwards because for so many years, the focus has just been on we want to deliver a healthy baby and not being a focus of we want a mum who can still exercise and who can still live their life the way they wanted to live it. Yeah, absolutely. And just feel like herself as well. Yeah, I do think that's pertinent, though, talking about the antenatal education there because the last thing you want to be doing is talking about all the risks when they're in a sort of emergent crisis 
crises <laughs> mode. If you're commenting on clinicians and midwives not having the tools to be able to offer that to women beforehand in a really privileged country like Australia, it's actually quite a comment on the way in which society deals with women who are pregnant. I feel like there is like a little bit of a silence. They know what's better that they don't know the full truth. Like I certainly felt like that after I had my first child and was like, why didn't anyone tell me this was going to be so incredibly difficult on all different levels, you know, not just physically and the physical health that you deal with, but also emotionally and, you know, stress-wise, mental health, exercise, everything, like even just sense of self. I don't feel like I ever was ever told any of that. And I feel like people are just like, you know, that, but that's just what you've got to go through or almost like a suffering silence sort of thing. And I'm not sure if you feel like there are some comparisons between the suffering silence and how people present to you with these acute problems who are like, why didn't I know about this? You know, was it ever explained to them as well? Oh, look, I see so many people who have suffered in silence for many, many years and they just thought they had to put up with it. Mm. Many years ago, I treated a lady who was in her 80s and she had been, had urinary incontinence since she was 30 at the birth of her third child. Oh my goodness. Um, and she was told by the doctors, you've had children, that's just what happens. Yeah. And look, with in four to six months she was dry mm. yeah so this woman had dealt with urinary incontinence for 50 years when actually she just needed somebody who knew about urinary incontinence to teach her some pelvic floor exercises teach her what she needed to know give her strategies to deal with her urinary incontinence and she was dry yeah at aged 80 at aged 80 we shouldn't be suffering in silence there are things that women can do and one of the big things i do find that i mean we seem to talk about urinary incontinence a lot more it's becoming much more of a public thing to talk about and that's okay but pelvic organ prolapse is not something that people talk about they do suffer in silence and it really does affect women's sense of self Mm. okay women are often very embarrassed by a pelvic organ prolapse that they don't want to have intercourse because they feel like it all looks different down there and that their partner will know so Um, so tell us exactly what that is because i think i i have an idea of what that is i have had friends who've gone through it i haven't myself but for anyone listening who's not entirely sure and how would you describe that to someone in, in sort of layperson's terms who's not medical okay so with a pelvic organ prolapse the walls of the vagina have become more stretchy So it can be the front wall of the vagina that will stretch down and the bladder will fall in with it. Mm -hmm. And often people will call that a bladder prolapse. If it's the back wall of the vagina that's stretched down, then the bowel can fall in with it and that can impact on how you can empty the bowel. And sometimes it's the top of the vagina and then the uterus or the womb will fall down, regardless of which portion of the... And it can be a mixture of them. So it can be a combination. Mm -hmm. Um, But regardless of which portion stretches down, that is called a pelvic organ prolapse. Okay. Okay. And it generally will feel for a woman like there is something in the vagina, like there is a bulge or a lump. Mm. It will sometimes feel like everything's going to fall out. Okay. They just feel like all their organs are literally going to fall out of Mm. their vagina. Um, Sometimes it can be painful. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just an awareness that there's something there and they often won't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So that leads to a lot of fear when they're going, what is that? That wasn't there before and now I have something sitting there. If it comes down far enough, you can actually see it or feel it with your hand at the Mm. entrance of the vagina. And if it's at that point, often people will be very, 
concerned about their, as you said, their sense of self, mm. that they go, it doesn't look like it did. There's something there, I don't like it and I don't want to have sex. Or my partner, they're going to see it and I don't like that. Mm. You know? So that can really, really play on women's minds. Sometimes women will have a very small prolapse. It will sit up in the vagina. It won't be visible, um, but they can feel it. Or sometimes they don't even feel it. But when they have a pap smear done, the doctor will tell them that they have a prolapse. Or if they see a physio and the physio is checking pelvic floor, they'll be told they have a prolapse. And then they get really worried. Oh, I have a prolapse. I can't exercise. And that then has ongoing effects for mental health, physical health, because they stop exercising. And probably the biggest thing we need to be telling women is we don't really have the evidence to say that you shouldn't be exercising with prolapse. We think your prolapse will get worse if you exercise, but we don't actually have the evidence. The research hasn't really been done and the little bit of research that has been done and that is starting to emerge is actually showing that it doesn't make it worse. But that's a really hard thing for people to accept because we've always thought the opposite. Mm. So probably the biggest thing I would be encouraging women if they do have a prolapse is keep exercising but try and get in and see, if they can, get in and see uh, a physio who specialises in pelvic floor. It does need to be somebody who actually does internal examinations, yeah. not just somebody who does a bit of Pilates. And I don't want to diss anyone who does Pilates, but Pilates can be great when it's done well. But if you have pelvic floor problems, you really do need to see somebody who's going to do an internal examination. Okay. And there are things you can do for prolapse. So there are devices called a vaginal pessary mm -hmm. that you can put in. And a lot of women, um, more and more women, are starting to use vaginal pessaries just while they're exercising okay, so that yeah. they can use it as their scaffolding mm -hmm. and put that pessary into the vagina. It holds that prolapse up. It takes away the fear that it's going to get worse and allows you to exercise and go to boot camp without having any symptoms or problems. You obviously need to do pelvic floor exercises as well to ensure that we get that support with the muscles underneath to hold the organs up. But we shouldn't be stopping exercising. We need to look at the body as a whole. Yeah, that sounds very similar to what I think used to be referred to as a mesh. Did you have that in Australia? I know in the UK there was a big push to ask all women if you'd had that to come forward because they needed to have yeah. them out. And I think probably a lot of women our age will know that from our mother's age or our mother's friends or aunties who all had those sort of issues and it was like it's really stigmatized for that generation because as we talked about that woman who was 80 you don't talk about it or you just accept a course of treatment or you know a procedure and you go and get it done and you know now there's lots of people who are living with repercussions of these having gone wrong over time so I assume the mesh has something to do with that prolapse is that right yes and no the mesh surgeries yes there's a class action going on in Australia regarding the mesh surgeries yeah. and all of the meshes that are involved in that class action have actually been taken off the market in Australia. Yeah. So those surgeries no longer occur here. But there are a lot of women who are still dealing with the repercussions of having that mesh surgery. Mm. And the majority of that mesh surgery was done for prolapse repair. Yeah. Yes, in one sense where you're saying, is that part of the problem? It's just no new women. Are yeah. They're needing to have mesh removal done to deal with the terrible pain and the terrible problems that have, have been caused by that. Not mm. all women have had problems with the mesh, but a lot have. Mm. The vaginal pessary is not a mesh. Mm. It's a generally a silicon device that is placed into the vagina and the woman can take it in and out themselves. There are some risk factors, but they're fairly minimal, particularly if you are 
are self-managing and you do have to be under the care of a doctor. Well, it's good that um, there are different like newer options, you know, coming out, yeah. you know, considering the mesh, but that seems to have been like the main thing that was used for decades. Oh, yeah. So it's great that there are new new age um, option, and different options for women Absolutely. now. When I asked you before coming on the podcast, I said, what are the three things that we definitely want to get across as messaging? And, you know, the first one I think we've touched on quite a lot there. Number one, you said that these sorts of things and these pains shouldn't be accepted as normal. And any reduction in the control of your bladder or bowel after having a baby should not be accepted as normal. And these can be treated. And, you know, I feel like that's what we've been talking about. A lot of aches and pains with women have often always been explained away as women's issues or reproductive issues, whether they've been properly investigated or not. Quite often commentators on that tendency to refer to them as that will say that that's due to you know a lack of female clinicians or you're right at the top you know consultants who are at the sort of peak of their game because you know the new generation of female medical leaders aren't quite as large as they should be at that top sort of echelon in clinicians even in countries like Australia. I mean considering if you think about a woman who studied medicine if she is 60 now then she would have graduated in like 1990 or 95 so I mean the clitoris wasn't even dissected then so I think women in general need to be more vocal. Mm. I do think that the problems that are predominantly female-based, like endometriosis and pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence and faecal incontinence that go with it, are all, they're not sexy. Mm. You know? Sexy things make it into the media and get a lot of attention. So I do think we need to be a lot more vocal. Do I think we need more women at the top? Not necessarily. I actually think there are some men at the top who are doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. And there are men at the top who some of the women will just say, they were so wonderful. The way they talked to me, they were so compassionate. They knew what they were doing. Yes, I think we need a good mix of women and men. I don't think the clinicians all need to be women. There's some really good research that's happening and it's being done by both men and women. So if you've got someone who's sweeping you, sweeping your concerns under the carpet, then get a second opinion. Yeah. I tend to find, and definitely the younger generation of medical staff in general are much more aware of listening to the patient. Mm. I think those I think those days of, you know, as our parents and grandparents probably were more likely to do, if the doctor told you to do something, you did it without question, those days are gone. Yeah. People are much more likely to get on Google and do a bit of research mm. themselves. And I think that's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but you do have to take into account what you're looking at and avoid those websites where it's just people complaining because that's not helpful. Rural areas are really difficult. We definitely don't have enough clinicians in rural, particularly Australia, rural areas. Mm -hmm. People can travel three, four, five hours to find someone who's got some experience and still not have a lot of experience. Most clinicians in rural areas are expected to be a jack of all trades and they need to be, you know, an expert really of all mm. trades. And yeah. that's a lot to ask of somebody. And so you have to do the best you can. I certainly do some mentoring with physios that are based rurally and that can work really well too. Well, um, well staying with the, the sort of pain theme then, you also yeah. mentioned that sex should not hurt. And this is something that I talk about and say to women and indeed girls as well um, who are putting up with pain during intercourse yeah. and just thinking that that's you know, a normal part of sex. And, you know, if you're thinking about girls, then, you know, a lot of them uh, and young women have grown up watching porn 
porn for their sex education. Oh, yeah. So you know, how can you blame them when they think that women are supposed to be in pain when they're yeah. having intercourse and having any sort of sexual experience? But actual sexual function wise, what do you say is like safe to have any sort of sex after six weeks or is it very dependent on case by case basis? And what do you say then further about the sort of pain during or after sex? I used to work with an obstetrician who would tell the patients that anywhere from one day postnatal to two years for returning to intercourse was normal. Mm -hmm. Both ends of the spectrum are a little bit sad, but somewhere in the middle is probably about right. There is no right or wrong for when it is right for you to return to intercourse. Mm -hmm. It's when you feel ready. And some women don't feel ready for quite a few weeks. Generally, you need a little bit of lubricant for here, a little bit of a drink, (laughs) and a lot of lubricant for down there. Okay, okay. First attempt. (laughs) Okay. Because there's often going to be a baby crying potentially in the middle. Mm. (laughs) So you're trying to, your one ear is off trying to listen to if that baby's making noise. Yeah. While the rest of you is trying to focus on something that you're meant to be. This amazing sensual experience. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so getting that arousal is always going to be difficult initially. Mm. So knowing, accepting that and knowing that you're probably going to need a bit of help with lubricant is definitely an important thing. Mm -hmm. Go slowly. Don't expect to be swinging from the chandeliers. And the first couple of times you have sex after having a baby, it may not be fantastic, amazing, but it shouldn't be painful either. Mm -hmm. You know, the body is recovering and that's okay. It's allowed to recover, but it shouldn't be painful. Yeah. Obviously, if you are having intercourse while you've still got stitches, it might not be very comfortable. But once that's healed, it really should not be painful. And if it stays painful, then first thing would be, if you've got a scar line, I would actually say, try and doing a bit of massage yourself to that scar line just get a bit of look to be honest something really simple like olive oil or coconut oil is often a easy one that people can access it's moisturizing it'll stop you rubbing the surface away mm-hmm. and actually just do a bit of gentle massage with a thumb and a finger and just see does that settle it down if it doesn't seek treatment most maternity hospitals these days will have pelvic floor physio attached to them and so get a referral in when you're postnatal the wait time should be very short because you might have pelvic floor overactivity as a bit of a response from having a baby when you've had pain muscles tend to tighten in response in a protective response Mm. when that source of that pain disappears those muscles should go back to being normal Mm -hmm. but that's not always the case sometimes they will stay in protect mode and actually sit a little bit too tight they become tender to touch and they also don't release to accommodate a penis so it becomes painful to have intercourse as well. That is something that is very treatable. It is easier to treat if you haven't had multiple exposures to pain. So the sooner the better. Yeah. And that's great because that's sticking with a similar theme, like speak up, you know, go and seek help. And also I think like to do with most of these sort of issues post-birth is, you know, speak to your peers as well. I think that women are often tentative to ask questions because you don't want to appear like you're out of control or that you don't know that you should be doing this or finding... And if there's something wrong with me. Yeah, definitely. I'm the only person who's experiencing this. And often we're asking women who are going through exactly the same thing and maybe they're not going through the exact same problem but they're still new to it as well so in any area of sexual function I just say talk about it and speak up is definitely the way to go one other thing for 
for pain with intercourse is when in the postnatal period and particularly if women are breastfeeding it mm. will often last longer we don't produce a lot of estrogen and that is what produces the vaginal lubricant so women in their postnatal period often need a lubricant and it can be as simple as that and getting a good lubricant not something that dries up and goes sticky so you're very common your ky jelly style lubricant which unfortunately doctors and just about everyone still goes, oh, you know, grab some KY jelly. And so people go looking for that brand. It was designed to be a med for medical procedures, so it dries up and goes sticky really quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are a lot of um, lubricants on the market now that are designed for intercourse and they don't dry up and go sticky and they're really good. Um, there's a lot of variations on the brand that's come out. It's called Slickwood that a lot of people like at the moment. There's mm -hmm. Olive and Bee, which is an Australian-based one, and mm -hmm. it is literally um, beeswax and olive oil. Oh, okay. Um, that a lot of women really like as well um silk is another one s-y-l-k mm -hmm. um that are easily accessible on the yeah i sell silk it. on my website um happymash.com.au that's kiwi extract isn't it and they're it new is. zealand based yeah. obviously if they're kiwis yeah. i also sell lucy lube which is quite a new brand from oh. melbourne and i actually use that personally because i feel like it's like not quite so not so loose yeah. like you can you don't yeah. squirt it and you don't know where it's gone um but again always use it for every type of sexual exposure and like I never did that before I had children and it's just been such a revelation to be able to like continue great like sex after having children I don't see myself ever not using lubricant ever <laughs> like after having children I just think it's just part, like a tool to have and it will always be there absolutely mm. and that's really common yeah so number one get yourself some good lube try it some try it some of those brands we just mentioned another thing you mentioned there that before we came on the show was that exercise specifically so you can lift weights and perform high impact exercise after having a baby is this sort of advice for people who've had a vaginal birth with no types of complications or would it just be for anyone as long as you feel like you're not going to the extremes of exercise I would say that exactly. Anyone, as long as you're not going to the extremes of exercise. I wouldn't be putting my hand up and advocating for every woman to be doing heavy weights. I think that is a very individual and personal thing. And yeah. I don't think that we have the research to say that's safe or not safe yet. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very unknown. But certainly light to moderate weights are very safe. What most people are doing at boot camps and, and that type of exercise is completely fine. Yeah. Really what you do need to be careful with is technique. And that goes across the board. That doesn't matter whether you're postnatal or whether you're a 50-year-old man or a 17-year-old boy. Technique is important to make yeah. sure you don't get injured. But I think we do need to treat ourselves as humans. It doesn't feel good. Listen to your body. If it doesn't feel good, stop doing it. Change yeah, to something else. Absolutely. And that's most of the reason why you do advocate to keep having exercise in your life because it does make us feel good especially for our mental health so it doesn't make sense that you're doing it and it doesn't make you feel good I think there's whether it's to do with pregnancy or not there's so much mixed messages with exercise and diets and then that's before you even think about pregnancy you've probably heard a lot of that antenatally what types of exercise you should be doing or you could be doing or you shouldn't be doing you know there are lots of mixed messages and I think as long as women do the research into like proper evidence-based websites I suppose it is all websites that we end up going on yeah. or asks appropriate clinicians like yourself then you just take exactly what you need and you know what's best for you yes and the difficulty that we have with pregnancy too is 
it's not going to change because it is not ethical to perform research trials on pregnant women to see, well, if you do this sort of exercise, is that harmful for your child? Mm. It is never going to be ethical to do that. Once again, every person is different. Yeah. And we're never going to put those babies at risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Kate, where can people find you if we want to to know more about you and and what you do? I know you do have your own website. That's uh, katehooperphysiotherapy.com.au. I must admit, it's a pretty basic website. (laughs) Those are the best kinds of websites. I am not a huge social media person of Mm -hmm. any description. Um, I work uh, publicly and privately in Brisbane, um, Mm -hmm. and I work out of a a private clinic, the Queensland Pelvic Floor Centre at Bowen Hills in Brisbane. They have a website as well, which will give a bit more information. Yeah, I see that. It's qldpfc.com.au. I'll put this information in the show notes as well. Other good resources in terms of exercise is Pelvic Floor First. Mm -hmm. There's a website there. You do need to understand that that is a website that errs very much on the side of caution. Yeah. So the exercise advised on there it does have to be very limited yeah because the first thing it will tell you is go and see a physio first please yeah okay. just, but in terms of finding a physio close to you the australian physiotherapy association website um, it has a find a physio icon on there and then you can say i'm looking for a women's health physio or a women's men's pelvic floor physio and they will be able to pull up physios in your area okay that's great. I'll put that. I'll find that website and put that into the show notes because yeah. I think anyone listening who perhaps has had some of these issues or some pain in the past and maybe wants to, you know, feel like they should go forward and get checked, it's always yeah. good to sort of know where to start and not to, you know, go on the websites that you mentioned before that maybe aren't helpful to read. There's actually another really, really good pelvic pain website in Australia. It's called the Pelvic Pain Foundation. Yeah. It is endometriosis biased, but there is a lot of really good information on there for people who are experiencing pain with intercourse and it's Australian based as well. Okay thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us about some really serious issues but also just issues that do affect most women listening or at least their friends their aunties or mothers you know or will affect their friends in the future so it's really really vital that we do speak up as you say and not put up with the pain. Absolutely thank you for having me. Okay, right. I don't know about you, but I just learned so much. And whilst I was interviewing and editing this episode, so many of my friends reeled through my mind. Things that I had heard them mention, things that I had heard them refer to, which I did not know. Like, I did not know what they meant. And I was worried about asking them in case, like, I felt like I crossed the line into their personal space or... Like, I didn't want them to feel like they had to tell me if they didn't want to. And sometimes staying silent is so much easier than asking that extra probing question. And I feel like when so many of my friends who'd mentioned these sorts of things to me, they probably actually were trying to open up the conversation a little bit more about pelvic floor problems and about post-birth, post-pregnancy problems that they still have, even although their kids are like, you know, in school now. And I, I just feel terrible about not supporting them or going that extra mile to educate myself about these problems so thank you so much to Kate Hooper for telling us all the ins and outs of all the different types of problems that people do have um, and the majority of them are women the takeaways for me from this episode were 
things shouldn't feel different. And pain, you know, we shouldn't accept that as normal. Don't explain away pain or strange feelings as quote unquote women's issues. Ask for help. Seek a second opinion if you need to. Ask your friends and family members and let's talk about it. Another one, sex should not hurt. And we all need to talk more about pelvic floor problems, whether that be bladder, bowel, sexual dysfunction, post-pregnancy, post-birth. Let's all just speak up together and normalize this sort of conversation. And don't put up with pain if you have pain. And most importantly, stay charged.